So today we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 18, and I have this sermon titled, How to Suffer for Righteousness and Not Stupidity. Um, and so that gives you an idea of where we're going. Um, you know, I want to, I don't know if you, some of, some of us have been intentionally trying to steer away from the news because it feels like craziness, but in case you haven't been paying attention for the last few weeks, I want to give you a, the landscape of just like the last three or four days, okay? Um, Baltimore has decided to stop um, prosecuting all low-level offenses such as prostitution, traffic violations, and drug possession. The reasoning being because they found that they did this during COVID and all of their crime statistics went down. And so they're going to continue it. If you see the intellectual disconnect there... <laughs> California has legislation in the pipeline right now that would essentially bar Christians from being part of what are called peace officers, which is a rebranding of law enforcement under the um, announcement that because they're part of Christians, they're part of hate groups that stand against certain lifestyles, and therefore they shouldn't be allowed to be law enforcement. Um, Senator Manchin will be des the deciding vote in whether or not to eliminate the filibuster. He's always been a more centrist leaning Democrat, but conveniently, President Biden just offered his wife a job on his administration, and so I think we know how he will vote now. There's an executive order, again, on the horizons. One pastor that I read this week said that if you're not talking about race, you might think you're in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God isn't in you. Another pastor said if you don't take a public stand on each of these issues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. So according to both of these pastors, I'm not born again. Catholics for Choice announced that Mary had a choice about whether or not she would conceive Jesus, and so shouldn't we too? Can we all get a collective sigh that this is the world we now live in? And it feels often like it's insanity on every side of the spectrum. And I don't share this because I just want to get you riled up. I actually share this for a reason. Everyone has an agenda right now, don't they? On every side, everybody has an agenda. And I feel like I want to cover my ears in the midst of a sea of bullhorns. Can anybody relate to that? Well, I think this actually is very similar to what Israel was like 2,000 years ago. Rome had their agenda. It was to establish a uh, kind of a unified empire where plurality was really king. The scribes had their agenda. They were the academic elite along with the Sadducees of the day, reasoning away anything that was spiritual miraculous about Judaism, such as the resurrection. The Pharisees, they were kind of like the local religious leaders of the day, ruling in the synagogues, they were maintaining tradition. And so you can kind of extrapolate who these personalities would be in today's current world, right? The religious academic who have an opinion, the religious traditionalists who have an opinion, Rome who has an agenda. Then you have the zealots who had an agenda to reinstitute the kingdom at any cost. And then you had the tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes who were kind of stuck in the middle just trying to figure it out. And then Jesus. Jesus, who is the same yesterday 
and today and forevermore, Jesus arrives in the middle of this mess where everybody has an agenda. Jesus somehow, because he's God and he's full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus knows how to navigate this mess while maintaining his integrity, while obeying the Father, and while being subject to the civil authorities. You think about that. Jesus obeys the Father, Jesus maintains his integrity, and Jesus submits himself and is subject to Rome and the Pharisees. Jesus dies in the mess. Jesus dies because of the mess. But ultimately, this is the point of the story. Jesus dies what? For the mess. To clean it up. Let us not get hung up in the agenda, but remember that it's always about the gospel. Then and today too. And so the question that I have wrestled with today, and also this is kind of like the culmination of the last few weeks, is how can we be more like Jesus in the midst of all of this? All of this mess. And that's where Peter is going to bring us this week and the next, but especially this week. And so we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 18. And he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So in the preceding section, Peter was giving specific instructions regarding persecution and suffering to different population segments. And so uh, he talked about be subject as citizens to the empire. He talked about be subject as slaves to your masters. He talked about be subject wives to your husbands. And now he gives these general instructions that aren't population segmented, but instead this is to all believers, all believers who are in, in this encyclical area where he's sending out this letter. And this is his first command. His first command is actually a group of commands all hinging on this imperative to have something, a character trait. And in this first command, it's really about the family of God, how we treat one another, okay? And so this is why this is important, because in case you haven't noticed, the church is becoming increasingly fractured and not unified right now. And when I get newsletters that tell me I'm not a believer, that doesn't help, okay? And so this is where we're at in today's world. And so how do we maintain unity and love for one another so the church can move forward in the gospel progress that it's supposed to, in which it's supposed to move forward? And so he says, have these characteristics. And these are the characteristics. One, unity of mind. If you were going to look at this in the original Greek, it actually doesn't have a verb. It says, finally, all harmonious. And so that it's implied, have unity of mind, or be united, or be harmonious with one another. Finally, all harmonious. This is Peter's way of saying, be in harmony with one another. Now, um, you know when music, especially if you have a, a trained ear, you know when music is currently in harmony or when it is currently in discord. And you sense there's this discord in the, in the melody or in whatever's being played. And then when it moves from discord into harmony and it falls into the structure of the song, there's this tension and release. And if you're a musician, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And if you don't have a musical bone in your body, you still know what I'm talking about. You just don't know what I'm talking about. Okay? This is why some of you are like, this is why I don't like jazz. Right? Okay? <laughs> so the people of God should be like a song for the risen king that spirals out from our community, the way you throw a pebble into the lake and the ripples go out. That should be the unity that the people of God have, the love that they have one for, their, one for another as we are harmonious. This song of his excellencies, which Peter said earlier, proclaim his excellencies. This song of his excellencies should be refreshing, relieving, glorifying to God as it spirals out. And this is why unity is so crucial. You see, because the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a unified entity. This God is communal in his very essence and nature, and we as his people are his image. You individually are not his body. We are his body. And so it's only when we have a harmonious relationship are we accurately reflecting a picture of God. That's what it means to be the church globally and then on a, ma a micro level to be the local church, the ecclesia, the called out ones in this region, representing God communally. By the way, this is why this whole move towards digital church is unbiblical because you can't one another one another when you're by yourself. It's very hard to be harmonious when you're on your laptop. This is what we're called to. Well, what comes out of the desire to be harmonious is this, sympathy. He says, have sympathy. Sympathy is having feelings of pity for someone else's misfortune. Do you remember the, the body feels pain? If I cut my, um, if I cut my leg, then nerves are, are sending signals to my brain and back again, and your whole body is experiencing this in some way. It immediately starts compensating so that you can lean on your other leg. Your whole body experiences this process. There is a sense in which we have an inner sympathy within our own physiological development as human beings where we understand that if one part of the body hurts, the whole body is impacted. And this is exactly what Paul says. He says, when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. When one part of the body mourns, the whole body should mourn. When one party part celebrates, the whole body should celebrate. Sympathy allows us and helps us to weave a harmonious atmosphere as we sense the pain of one another, but that's impossible without the next thing that we're supposed to have, which is brotherly love. See, love is what should come out of a desire to be harmonious and your sympathetic feelings, your sympathetic leanings. If you look at someone and you feel bad, but then don't do anything about it, then you didn't love them. You had sympathy for them, but you didn't love them. See, love always leads to action. Imagine if God the Father looked down and he said, I really feel bad for these poor human beings. I genuinely feel bad in my inner being. Oh, well. But that's not what he did. God so loved the world. He demonstrated love to the world who by definition is his enemy by sending his son to die on a cross and be buried and be resurrected for their sins to pay the full penalty of wrath. This love is like the chain link 
which leads to the next word in Peter's logic, and that's a tender heart. Now, tender heart, we wouldn't really say that. I'm not sure why ESV translated it that way. But in our own personal vernacular or nomenclature, words we would use, we'd probably say compassionate. And so you, because of a desire to be harmonious, you look at someone, you have sympathy for their plight. I feel bad for that person where they are. And then love stirs me to act, and that act results in compassion. Because if sympathy is feeling someone else's pain, compassion is actually doing something about their pain. And the link that connects them is love. And as Peter winds down this chain of descriptors, he ends it with, have a humble mind. Because ultimately, as we know, embracing the call to count others as more important than yourself, like it says in Philippians 2, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but basically to have kingdom ambition over selfish ambition that is all rooted in humility, without which none of this will happen. That's why Jesus, even Jesus, who was in his divine nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be leveraged. But instead, he took on the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. And if Jesus did this, how could we not? And so this is Peter's first string of commands. He says, if you want to live a harmonious life, if you want to exist and thrive in a hostile environment that despises you and hates you, you need to aim for harmony, you need to be humble, and all of these characteristics will flow from that desire for harmony and your pursuit of humility. And then he gives a second command, and this second command is about how we interact with the world. This is what he says, Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil. On the contrary, bless. The second command relates to how we interact with a world that hates us, a world that despises us. What do you do? You bless those who harm you instead of getting even. That's what he says. You can be mad at Peter. You can be mad at the Holy Spirit for inspiring Peter. You can't be mad at Pastor Bill. He says, instead of getting even, bless. Instead of getting even, bless. Think about what we discussed over the last few weeks. What is the temptation when your government and your society begins to enacting all the things I listed? Get even. But what does he command us? Bless. What is the temptation if you're a slave and your master is cruel? Get even. But what does he say to do? Bless. What is your temptation if you are a tender, loving, godly wife and your husband is adult? Get even. <laughs> but instead, he says, bless. Bless. Be a blessing. Bless your government by being a contributing member of society rather than a leech. Bless your master by doing hard work well without complaint. Bless your overbearing husband by showing him respect even if he doesn't deserve it and reflecting good works. Bless your wife by being tender and compassionate and kind towards her rather than treating her like she's one of the bros. These are the things that we've been talking about over the last few weeks but he gives us a reason why and he says why 
that we might obtain a blessing. Peter explains this by quoting from Psalm 34. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you were going to go and read Psalm 34 in its entirety, you'd notice that there's another thing that Peter referenced from Psalm 34 earlier in this letter. And that's Peter said earlier, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, which is another reference to Psalm 34. And so if we were going to summarize Peter's argument, he's saying, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, it's very similar to Philippians 2, right? If you have experienced any of these amazing qualities from Christ, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, if you want to be blessed by the Lord, if you want to please the Lord, if you want the Lord to hear your prayers, that's what it says in Psalm 34, but it's also what he said in 1 Peter 3, 7, when he says, love your wives well so that the Lord will hear your prayers. So if you want to be blessed, if you want to please the Lord, if you want the Lord to hear your prayers, what does he say to do? Walk in integrity. That's basically what Peter's saying. Walk in integrity. How would you define integrity? Integrity is defined as being the right person no matter where you are. Whether you're by yourself, whether you're at work, whether you're with your family, you're basically the same person. You have integrity. It's who you are when nobody else is watching. That's the definition of these things. Is if you want all of that stuff, you have to walk in Holy Spirit-empowered integrity. You need to be a blessing to others to receive a blessing from the Lord. And in Peter's framework, and more specifically in Psalm 34's framework, the blessing is good days, a life from affliction, as he's going to explain in another verse. The point, though, is this, from the smallest level at home to the most macro level of life on a global scale, you and I, we are commanded to be the right people. Whether you live in Texas or New Jersey, whether you live in Florida or North Dakota, whether you're in California or Kandari, it doesn't matter, be the right people person. God is far more concerned with you being the right person no matter where you are than you being in the right place at the right time. Be a person of integrity. What makes the Christian life so difficult is it's so daily, Pastor Daniel Henderson said. And that's the truth. Be a person of integrity. In the midst of the cruelties of life, in the midst of the madness of our day. And I acknowledge that there are people in this room all over the spectrum of opinions on all of the things that are happening in our world today. And the point is this, people disagree with you. So in the midst of the disagreement, what do you do? You love God, you love people, you make disciples. You hear, 
you implement and you pass it on to other people. In the midst of the cruelties, be a blessing by walking in integrity instead of walking in bitter revenge. Knock the chip off your shoulder. Peter continues, verse 13. This is where he's going. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, not stupidity, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, accused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. After all, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. So what is Peter's argument? Peter's argument is that, logically, as people who actually realize the emperor isn't wearing clothes, okay? Logically, we realize there's no justifiable reason for people to hate me if I do good. But we realize that's not reality, okay? If you do suffer for living a life of integrity, if you do suffer for living a life of integrity and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, Peter wants you to realize this. Your suffering is not wasted. He says, so live a life of integrity, obeying God, okay? And if you suffer, realize that your suffering is not wasted by God. He says, when you are accused, you know, this, this verse here, verse 15 you know, always be prepared to make a defense. This gets ripped out of context so much. What the, Peter's really saying is that when you get arrested and you get accused and you're standing before judges and tribunals and governors, um, get ready to answer defense in a way that is God-honoring with integrity because it's actually an opportunity to do what? Preach the gospel. This is what Jesus said, by the way, as well, when he said, when they arrest you and drag you before the authorities, don't overprepare, but remember the Holy Spirit will give you the words in that moment so you can make a defense. And Peter, building on what he heard his Lord and Savior say to him face to face, he says, present yourself with gentleness and respect. And Peter knows this from personal experience because he realized that he had to obey God and not man, as he says in Acts chapter 5. But then after being beaten and spit upon, he rejoices singing hymns and psalms of praise as he goes back home because, praise the Lord, he was counted worthy of being beat up for Jesus. It reminds me of Stephen, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7, and they're all making accusations against Stephen. And do you remember what it says at the end of that passage? It says, and as they looked at Stephen, his face was like that of an angel. So here's Stephen before the tribunal, and they're saying, Stephen did this, Stephen did that, Stephen did this. And Stephen, meanwhile, is like, he's like knitting some booties for a newborn baby. He's like feeding this guy over here who's homeless. And Stephen's like, what did I do? 
all right? He's saying, do so with gentleness and respect. Now, you read Stephen's testimony in Acts chapter 7. Stephen's not a pushover. He, he says some hard truth. But you can say bad things in a really good way, as we learn from Robin Hood men in tights. Okay? <laughs> so give them the, good, the bad news in a good way, right? The tongue of the, the wise makes knowledge acceptable. So why does Peter care? Because as you live a life of integrity and when you get accused and when people say this guy's actually a liar and a cheat and, and they go on and on and on and because you've been walking with integrity, all of this will actually be like I'm rubber, you're glue, right? It bounces off of you and it sticks to them because at the end of the day, who's going to look like the idiot? They are if you're walking in integrity. If you walk in integrity, then all of the accusations against you will actually be insanity, the same way that they had a kangaroo court for Jesus. A life of integrity, a life of being a blessing to other people in the midst of an evil, hostile generation, this is what we're called to. Stand up for truth. I'm not saying to bury your head in the sand and not talk, no. Stand up for truth, but do so with love and gentleness and respect. And here's the kicker, okay? The hardest part for us to get. If you are living like that, you have integrity in word and deed, okay? Make sure you're paying attention. If you are living like that and suffering occurs, you ready? What does Peter say? It is the will of God. Peter says, if you are living with integrity and you suffer, it is the will of God. And therefore, you can't get too mad. And you say, I don't believe that. Look at the next verse. For, that's a causal word. In other words, because... Don't get too mad, bro, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God by being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What is Peter's point? Jesus lived the life we are all supposed to live, knowing when to obey God, knowing when to be subject all of these different kinds of things. Jesus did it all and Jesus suffered and it was God's will that he should suffer. It was God's plan that he would suffer. His suffering in the flesh gives me and you life in the spirit. And if Jesus hadn't suffered, where would we be? Still dead in our sins. Still children of wrath by nature. There is no framework, there is no canister in our minds as Americans for a theology of suffering. But it is crucial because what was Jesus' title? The man of suffering. What did God say to Paul on the road to Damascus? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ through my suffering. 
Paul says. Let's pull this together. If you live the kind of life that Peter's been describing, I'll remind you, a life where you realize you are a refugee, you're in exile, and this isn't your home. Two, you proclaim his excellencies and aren't afraid of suffering. Three, you live with absolute integrity from the home to the workplace to the public sector. Four, if you don't try to get even, but instead be a blessing to your community that despises you. Five, you will be blessed by the Lord. Integrity will keep you from a great deal of suffering, but not all suffering. And sometimes you will suffer even if you do all the right things. Consider Jesus on Palm Sunday. There he is, riding into the city of God on a donkey, which meant peace. He has come to establish peace, peace on earth between God and man. This is his mission. This is his task. Jesus, by the way, would be betrayed by Judas, Judas Iscariot, right? Did you know that when you track Judas's name and you go through the way areas where his family was from, that there are multiple Jewish scholars who believe that Judas didn't actually want Jesus to be harmed, but that Judas was a zealot and he thought if he could get Jesus arrested, it would be the flashpoint for the Jews to finally stand up and revolt and for Jesus to lead them to victory. So Judas may have had great intentions exploited by the enemy because he was a zealot too. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus obeyed the father first, but was subject to earthly authorities. Notice in this previous section, Peter didn't say, obey the emperor. He said, be subject to the emperor. We obey the father, but we are subject to earthly authorities, just like Jesus. In other words, Jesus respected the laws, but he knew when to break them, like healing on the Sabbath, because that wasn't God's law, that was man's law. He subjected himself to the laws of the land, like taxes, and even death on a cross. Why? Because he was obeying the Father. He knew that doing the right thing in God's eyes and even doing good things in the eyes of society wouldn't exempt him from suffering, but quite honestly might lead him to suffering. Jesus died for his father, exalting integrity. He died for his father's mission. He died for his obedience to the Lord while still being subjected to the state. And it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's what it says in Isaiah 53. It was God's plan to have him be a Messiah for sin and not a hero of any other variety. That's what we needed. It's not what we would have crafted. I can guarantee you if any of us were writing a narrative for the last 14 months in the world, this isn't what we would have written. But God is sovereign. 
So this is my bottom line. If you've been tuning out, you're still mad at me about my opening introduction. In light of the sure impending persecution on believers, it's coming. I do not believe our role is to stop it. I do not believe our role is even to slow it down. I believe our role is to live a life of integrity. Obeying the Father while willfully being subjected to the state, even when we have to disobey the state because we're obeying the Father. And for some of your vocations, that will be more clearly revealed than others if you work in the public sector. Live a life of integrity. And if you still suffer for being a follower of Jesus Christ, be confident it is God's will. And if it is God's will, it's because he wants to use your suffering to glorify himself. This is a hard message if you can receive it. Suffering is part of God's plan too. And so if you're going to suffer... Suffer for the right reasons with godliness and integrity. Around your tables, why don't you talk? Families, why don't you talk about what is integrity with your kids? Try to hash through that. If you don't have kids with you or if your kids are older, there are some questions there at the table to chat about. You know, what area of integrity is most difficult for you? Why do we naturally want to fight against suffering instead of receive it willingly? Just read through some of those questions and talk for a few minutes. Your kids will slowly begin making their way back to your tables. <laughs>